episode three of our Innovation in Energy podcast. Today, we're going to look into the resource requirements to deliver energy transition and the impact of critical minerals for the energy transition journey. As countries and companies move forward with their net zero targets, there's going to be an enormous increase in demand for certain minerals, especially those that support electrification and energy storage. This unprecedented increase in demand for these minerals is forecast to lead an increasingly significant demand supply imbalance from about 2025 onwards. I'm delighted to be joined in the virtual studio by three experts from across our global network. Jonathan Lee, UK Mining and Metals Leader for PwC. Lauren Burmack, PwC Canada's Mining Deals Leader. And Lockie Haynes, Partner in PwC Australia's Environmental and Transactions Advisory Group. Welcome to all of you. It's great to be on the line together. And I welcome John from London, Lockie from Melbourne, and Lauren from Toronto. We're recording this at 8 p.m. in the UK. So it's good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to each of you. So what do we really mean by critical minerals and energy transition? John, perhaps I'll start with you first. It'd be great to get your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Liz. And it's, it's great to be here today to talk about a really important topic, actually, because I think the, delivering the minerals to um, or to create energy transition and make sure that we make that a global success is something that really needs a lot of focus for some of the reasons hopefully we're going to explore in this podcast. By critical minerals, we really mean the, the minerals required to deliver an energy transition and, and a lot of those are focused around electrification. So those are minerals such as copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, graphite, uh, and many of those are focused on battery components and battery technology as, as that becomes more and more important to delivering 24-7 power. Uh, in a, from renewable sources. As the world ramps up this, we're going to need more and more of these types of minerals. For example, I think um, some of the forecasts we've seen around the copper and nickel investment over the next 10 years are between the regions of 250 to 300 billion dollars of capital investment alone. And there are many other minerals that we're going to need in, in enormous quantities as we move through energy transition. Right. And and John, I'll just like add on to that, that, you know, this is really tricky in mining. Um, well, there are a lot of identified resource projects out there. Many aren't even are anywhere close to being developed. Um, many just haven't been economically vi viable in the recent price and pricing environments. Um, you know, and this is driven by a lot of, of reasons. A lot of the high grade, lower co cost mines have already been built. And some of these critical minerals like graphite and lithium, the projects tend to be smaller, they're more difficult to develop. They have you know, really unique chemical compositions and can be quite expensive. Um, so a higher price environment is really needed to make these projects economical. And while we are clearly moving towards that higher price environment, you know, mining projects take so long to develop. Um, I'd say 10 to 15 years is the average from discovery to first production. You can't really flip the switch quickly. Um, so shortages in mining, really, they could take years um, to, to recover from, which could lead to price impacts over a very long period of time. Loki, I'd like to bring you in here. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, there's been much written about the transition to net zero, and I'm sure our listeners are aware of that, uh, but relatively little um, about the role of critical minerals. And I think this role has been underestimated. The critical minerals will make or break the energy transition. For example, Australia is seeking to develop its advanced manufacturing capability, including renewable energy componentry. This is going to require the development of the upstream capacity and capability to deliver the requisite volumes of critical minerals at the necessary quality and price. 
There are also a number of countries that have made net zero commitments that are reliant on the deployment of low emissions technologies, and that includes Australia. The sharply increasing costs of critical minerals will challenge the accepted wisdom that tech costs always decline through learning curve effects and the development of supply chains. For example, the cost of solar PV is being challenged by a near trebling of polysilicon and silicon prices over the past 12 months. And Bloomberg is forecasting the first increase in lithium-ion batteries in 2022 for over a decade. And lastly, we should bear in mind that climate technology cannot scale indefinitely given its reliance on critical mineral inputs. So with all of these challenges, it sounds like we're going to be entering a more volatile price environment with potentially much higher prices as a result of the increasing need for these critical minerals. Lockie, perhaps staying with you, what are the impacts of this likely to be, do you think? Well, it's worth bearing in mind that many critical minerals are bought and sold in opaque markets. There are exceptions uh, with base metals like copper and nickel that are traded in the London Metal Exchange, but this is not true for all the critical minerals. Um, the issue here is it makes price discovery and price certainty challenging. And the impact of that uncertainty uh, is on the availability of funding for the development of the mines and the associated, associated infrastructure that we'll need. We should expect to see exchange traded contracts emerge over time to address these challenges. And, you know, maybe I'll just add on um, some additional impacts that I'm thinking about as well. Um, you know, globally, there really is a drive to localize um, supply chains. Um, right now, there's high geographical concentration for many critical minerals. Um, you know, when you think of cobalt in the DRC and graphite in China. Um, also, as you move downstream, um, there is a huge concentration of refining capabilities in China. Um, by localizing supply chains, countries will reduce risk of of future disruptions and have more control over supply. I mean, we've seen the impacts of this, you know, with the pandemic um, in areas outside of mining. So, you know, it, it is very, um, it, it's very, it's really coming to focus as a major issue. Um, you know, another thing would be greater resource nationalism, which kind of falls from, um, you know, localizing supply chains. Um, really when their supply constraints and commodity, and commodity prices are high, it can really lead to heightened risks of governments um, trying to take over foreign-owned mines or taking larger ownership stakes, and also raising taxes and royalties um, to ensure that more of the profits stay within the country. Um, we're definitely seeing these impacts, you know, in countries around the world. Um, you know, one of the other impacts that I think we are going to see is that projects will have to get built faster. Um, governments, you know, they're going to have to start streamlining the permitting process. Um, and also provide financing support and more investment tax incentives to get these projects built faster. I think you you raised some really interesting points there, Lauren, and I think actually the the kind of localization of the supply chain is is going to be a real driving theme. And actually, kind of digging into that a bit deeper, no no pun intended. Um, the the role of the commodity traders in that is going to be really interesting, and really thinking about what the the supply chain of the future looks like, and 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 looking to support kind of the, the growing gigafactory um, economy that we're seeing and I think that's really echoing a theme that I expect to, to emerge which is an increase in awareness by the miners of the fact they need to be more customer centric so I can I can see a world emerging where a, a customer is looking at getting specific um, mineral products for example specific metals that have maybe a bespoke carbon content um, or something like that or, or, or some some degree of specificity just for that customer rather than what we've had historically which is a, a generic kind of LME graded product with uh, one size fits all and I think what 
that might mean is that actually means that those aggregators or, or traditionally kind of some of these entities that we've seen more as tolling entities or, or earning that kind of place on the value chain may actually be able to bring more value to customers and, and capture some more of the value chain potentially from the miners um, as, as they aggregate material and provide a, a kind of a better shop window for the customers. I think there's also another another kind of interesting um, trend that we'll see that this price environment volatility will, will drive. And that's probably the impact of substitution uh, and, and effectively kind of new technology solutions. And effectively that creating more uncertainty in the market where, where as you mentioned, we've got a very long development time and you need kind of certainty for that funding and to, and to press the button on developing a mine. And a really good example of that we're seeing at the moment is, is um, electric vehicle battery technology. So we're seeing um, increasingly kind of a, 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 a move to bespoke battery technology. So lithium iron phosphate, for example, is, is now coming into fashion, which is, is not as good a solution um, as, as kind of the, the nickel, cobalt, aluminium or NCA batteries that are in most electric vehicles at the moment, because the energy density is so much lower and recharging times are longer. <clears throat> and um, But it costs a lot less to produce. So we're starting to see kind of Tesla, for example, in China moving to a, a model where Model 3s are going to be built around LFP battery technology rather than NCA battery technology. And, and you'll probably start to see kind of shipping if that moves to electric batteries using less energy dense forms of batteries because it's less important for the overall cost base and maybe even kind of static um, storage, static battery storage as well. Um, so that kind of move actually will, will have a really interesting impact on commodity demand as that comes through. And, and potentially you could even see a, an environment where with a really high commodity price environment and real scarcity of, of critical minerals, maybe that actually hastens the, the introduction of the hydrogen economy as a way of, of, of storing energy and providing energy to, to, um, to, to mobilization and, and, and movement potentially. Now that might be an extreme example, but certainly I think it's one that, that shouldn't be discounted out of hand. John, thank you for that. I never knew that there were so many different types of battery technology out there. Lauren, perhaps turning to you now, what does this mean for how a miner can create value in this price environment? Um, well, you know, one one way is through M&A. Um, you know, I think a lot of miners right now are looking at their portfolios and trying to assess whether they, they have enough um, exposure to critical minerals and will be assessing whether they need more. Um, we're already seeing deal activity pick up in this area. Um, you know, a few deals to highlight, you know, in Canada, there was a recent battle for um, Noron and its Eagle's Nest nickel deposit between BHP and Wailu Metals, um, with Wailu uh, eventually um, emerging as the winner. Um, Wailu paid a significant premium for, you know, an asset that's actually quite challenging. Um, while it's very high grade, it's very remote and requires significant investment in roads and infrastructure to get built. Um, as well as agreements with um, many area First Nations um, communities. Um, you know, some other acquisitions that we've seen, you know, in the lithium area, um, some recent ones in um, 2021, um, Rio Tinto's announced acquisition of Rincon's lithium project and Zuzian's acquisition of Neolithium. Um, and so these are, you know, definitely a pickup of lithium acquisitions um, in the recent months. In addition to straight M&A, the fast-growing um, battery supply chain um, is also um, seeking to secure raw material supply. So this, um, you know, ability to enter into long-term partnerships with a diversified production base is really an advantage to miners. Um, we've already seen several of these. Um, you know, one was the recent um, Tesla's recent partnership with New Caledonia's New Caledonia's Goro mine. 
So we expect to see a lot more of those coming, um, you know, in, in the in the future. Lauren, I have a habit of always agreeing with you. And when once again, I find myself agreeing with everything you say. I think for me, the um, the really interesting move is, is I think we're seeing a, a bit of a change of changing of guard at the majors now that, that's kind of been in the air for the last few months, but is actually gathering momentum all the time. Uh, and I think as we move from this historical steady as you steady as you go type policy, actually there's a real, which focused on production and um, returning cash to shareholders. I think there's a real change in terms of how, how will the miners of the future create value for shareholders through this um this this kind of the, the resources boom that's going to come due to the demand for energy transition that that in itself i think will attract new market entrants as well um so i i suspect we'll see um increasing vertical integration um re-emerging as a trend particularly kind of the the battery manufacturers or even the automotive sector as they seek to secure supply and actually kind of who who bears the risk for, for securing that raw material will be really interesting and where it might be seen as um the um, OEMs actually going this is such a core component to us that we need to seek uh, supply su supply security rather than the, the kind of the emerging battery manufacturer class that we're seeing. I suspect private equity will start looking um, uh, in, in a more focused manner so we've got the the kind of specialist private equity mining firms that that have been kind of ever present in the market but I think certainly I'm seeing um, renewed interest from mainstream private equity funds looking at allocating some some capital to mining as well as then actually kind of the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds also becoming kind of re re refining their appetite for investment in the sector. I think there'll be an interesting kind of change in value perception and, and certainly the carbon content will, will have a um, uh, will, will have a, re a new focus and potentially create new value opportunities. So where you've got um, a local supply chain that's that's maybe kind of hydro powered, for example, and that goes from minor through to um, through to smelting and refining through to um, to the end user that could suddenly become very powerful in minim minimizing the carbon emissions from from, from moving um, minerals around the world. And I think that low energy um, or low carbon or low cost energy access will also help create a, a kind of a, a, a um, so people will have a different perception of value and also create some interesting dynamics that, that different investors will treat differently. Lockie, I know you've got some some perspectives on this as well with with an Australian tone to them. Yes, from my perspective, I'd urge critical mineral producers to reconsider their propensity to collaborate. I'm not referring to the industry consolidation via M&A that Lauren mentioned, although that certainly has a role, but seeking to collaborate on the development of downstream processing facilities and infrastructure. The Kwanana Battery Hub near Perth in Australia is an interesting case study and possibly represents an industrial strategy to replicate. Collaboration of this sort may also provide opportunities to attract new pools of capital that have not traditionally invested in the commodities industry, notably superannuation or pension funds. They could pursue infrastructure-like returns while limiting exposure to commodity risk. Well, as a transactions tax partner, it's really exciting to hear about all that future M&A activity. It's clearly going to keep us busy. We're running up to the end of the podcast now, so it'd be great to get some final thoughts from each of you. There's clearly an enormous amount of change that's needed in what has historically been a relatively steady industry, one that perhaps hasn't seen huge shifts in business model or disruption in the same way that many other industries have. This must be a really exciting time to be part of that journey. Lockie, what are your reflections on what the future might hold? It is, Liz. Um, but that said, despite the change and disruption we've discussed today, there are some long-standing challenges that remain and cannot be overlooked. 
these include um, things like securing social license from local communities as you seek to develop mines, managing the ESG aspects of new projects and processing facilities. And there's a lot more focus and attention on those aspects uh, today than there has been. Uh, obtaining finance for project development is continuing to prove a challenge and the lengthy timeframes for project development that Lauren's already mentioned today. There is also an ever-present geopolitical element to the way in which the critical minerals industry develops from this point. So for example, we've seen recent uh, announcements around establishing new or deepening existing ties between allies like the US, the UK, Australia, India, and Japan through AUKUS and the Quad. And each of those has a significant focus on developing the critical minerals industry. I'll just uh, jump in here as well. You know, I think, you know, Liz, like you said, this is a really exciting time. There's going to be a huge amount of growth um, across the whole battery supply chain in the next years. And really, a, a lot of what's going to happen in the next few years is really going to shape the sector for the coming decades. Um, you know, I think it's clear the investments are going to come here and, and new, you know, battery supply chains are going to get built. But there's still a lot of uncertainty about where exactly, um, you know, these supply chains are going to be built and which jurisdictions are really going to, you know, become the leaders um, in the area. You know, I think we're seeing governments um, trying to give their jurisdictions, you know, a leg up by being proactive with incentives um, and initiatives, you know, to, to ensure that they have a place. You know, um, you know, speaking from the, a Canadian perspective, um, you know, Canada really could be and, and actually should be a world leader here. You know, we have a huge amount of resources. We have a skilled workforce. We have high ESG standards. Um, we're really close to the U.S. Um, and there's a lot of end user demand there. So, you know, I think that's a goal right now of the Canadian government. But, um, you know, it still remains to be seen whether um, whether that's going to happen in Canada. Um, you know, maybe I'll pass it over to John and see um, if he has a U.K. perspective to add in there. From the UK perspective, it's really exciting. I mean, we've we've historically been a very important financing centre for for mining and metals um, globally, uh, as well as being the head office location for a number a number of, of, of very large mining operators. So I think we're going to see kind of a pick a considerable pickup in activity over the next decade, as as, as effectively the critical minerals um, need to be mined to meet the energy transition demand. And I think that's tremendously exciting for for those of us who are, who are really passionate about the industry here. I think one of the things that I'm also very focused on with it, with a UK hat on that we, we haven't actually spent much time or any time talking about on this podcast is, is the rise of the circular economy and actually what, how the value chain um, evolves around recycling um, and effectively one of, one of the ways in which we can meet this, this huge demand boom that we're facing is, is by better recycling. Now, that's not going to solve it all, but it can take a big step to helping us get there. And actually, I think it's really interesting to see from the UK how that, how that recycling value chain develops and in particular how that's funded through a growth stage because clearly there's 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 um we're, we're years away from having a a kind of sustainable circular economy in the uk with kind of mass adoption of evs for example and, and recycling of ev batteries as, a, as, a, as an easy easy example um so that's certainly one of the things i'm i'm spending a lot of time thinking about and talking to people about about how that circular economy looks as well as kind of the the, the need to get the primary mining um investment um over the coming years Jonathan, Lauren, Lockie, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights today and for joining me at various times of day around the world. It's been a fascinating discussion. Clearly, there are some exciting times ahead as the industry starts to tackle some of these challenges. And that's it for another episode of our Innovation in Energy podcast. 
I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of you, our listeners. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe to keep up to date with all of our brilliant podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.